We do this with every book of the Bible that we go through uh, in this woven series as we take this kind of 30,000 foot view of uh, several books of the Bible. We're, we're uh, very quickly, um, not very quickly, but relatively quickly coming to an end. There's only so many, you know, there's only 66 books in the whole Bible and we've covered several. We have more Old Testament books than New Testament books left and I'm hoping to try to uh, make up ground there a little bit in, um, in coming weeks and months, but we'll get there eventually. Uh, if you remember all the way back to March when we talked about 1 Thessalonians and uh, some of the particulars surrounding the writing of that letter, uh, its author, its date, its general context, and so on, uh, essentially all the same things are true for 2 Thessalonians. 1 and 2 Thessalonians were, were written in relatively uh, uh, short order, one after the other. There's not a whole lot of time between the two. We know that Paul is Paul the Apostle and missionary is the primary author of this letter, but he also includes in his initial greeting in chapter 1, verse 1, verse one uh, Silvanus and Timothy, or Silas and Timothy, his missionary partners as well. So Paul includes them as uh, sort of partial authors, or at least those that are sending greetings to the church at Thessalonica. And this is because all three of them, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, had all been ministering together in Thessalonica prior to Paul sending these letters. The letter of 2 Thessalonians, like I said, was, was written shortly after 1 Thessalonians, probably sometime between the years 49 and 51 AD, uh, likely from Corinth, the city of Corinth, when Paul was staying there on his second missionary journey. Uh, as we learned last time, or back in March when we were in 1 Thessalonians, we learned that Thessalonica is the capital city of the region of Macedonia had a population of about 100,000 people, so a fairly large city in its day, and it was a major commercial hub there. Uh, Thessalonica was quintessentially Greek in culture and religion and lifestyle. Even though they were part of the Roman Empire, they were steeped in, in that kind of uh, Greco or Grecian uh, uh, kind of uh, culture and way of life. We learned that Paul visited Thessalonica after being released from jail in Philippi by way of a couple of other territories making his way to Thessalonica. And when he came to that city, he followed his usual pattern of reasoning in the synagogues with the Jews there before then turning to preach the gospel to the Gentiles in that particular city. We learn in Acts chapter 17, verse 2, that Paul and Silas were in the synagogue that is that central gathering place for the Jews in Thessalonica for three Sabbaths. So uh, maybe not three weeks, but at least three Sabbath days. And they were there explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ, as Luke records for us in Acts 17, verses 2 and 4. Now, not long after Paul uh, and Silas and Timothy were preaching in Thessalonica, a mob was formed by some jealous Jews, and Paul and Silas were forced to leave under the cover of darkness to escape from that city. So Paul's time in Thessalonica was exceedingly short, which leads to part of the crisis that Paul uh, writes to in 1 Thessalonians, uh, speaking there to those in the church who think that they may have, uh, that, that when Christ returns, those who have died, those saints in the church, members of the church who have died, that they will somehow miss out on Christ's return and the resurrection. And Paul says, no, 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 that's not the case at all. Well, another problem arose shortly after that, also relating to the return of Christ. And so when news of that gets to Paul in Corinth, he shoots off another letter here, 2 Thessalonians, very quickly. And we'll see the issue that it pertains to. 
When Paul eventually landed in Athens after uh, escaping under the cover of darkness from Thessalonica, he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to check in on the church. And when Timothy met back up with Paul again later in Corinth, he delivered the news that not only was there still a church in that city, but the church was thriving. So Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians to address some issues that the church had about the return of Jesus, and he writes 2 Thessalonians shortly after uh, to address some other pressing concerns about the return of Jesus that Paul later became aware of. Uh, Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians is only about three chapters long, and uh, on the audio Bible that I often listen to as I'm reading along to uh, study for these things, uh, the, the audio version of the Bible, if you listen to it at just normal speed of, of this letter, is only about four minutes long. And so you can read the whole of Second uh, Thessalonians relatively quickly, although my guess is you'll hit chapter two and you'll probably have to slow down for a bit, and you'll see why a little bit later. But 2 Thessalonians is a letter of, uh, it's a directed letter of theological correction and exhortation to the church in Thessalonica. Paul is writing very directly. In some places, it may seem even stern or a little bit cold. In this letter, Paul is correcting the Thessalonians' errant belief that Christ's return had already taken place. So when he writes 1 Thessalonians, there's some that are afraid that when Christ returns, those who have died are going to miss out on it. And, and between the writing of the first letter and the writing of the second letter, some other people have begun to believe and begun to teach in the church that Christ has already returned and we've all missed it. And so he exhorts the church to, uh, so, so he, he writes to correct that error and he writes to exhort the church to admonish those among them who had become idle and lazy uh, in light of the, perhaps the idea, the thinking that Christ had already returned. So what's the point? I've already missed it. I'm not going to do anything with my life. Or perhaps they were just generally unwilling to work even as they waited for Christ's return. Don't really know why the Thessalonians had such a problem with laziness, but um, Paul, Paul speaks sternly to it. There are uh, three major themes that I recognize in this very short letter, and we'll see them fairly clearly as we work through the letter here in a minute. First, Jesus is coming again. Uh, That was a major theme of Paul's first letter, and it continues here in the second one. A second theme is that certain things must take place before Christ returns. Uh, You'll recall, as I said just a moment ago, some had begun to believe Christ had already returned, and they were afraid that they had missed it. And Paul writes to assure them, no, you haven't missed it, and don't worry, when Christ does return, you can't miss it. Everyone will see it. And then finally, among major themes is this, that Christians must put themselves to to good work, to honest work, to profitable gospel work while they wait for Christ's return. And we'll see these themes flesh themselves out here in a moment. When we think about 2 Thessalonians, though, in the scope of redemption history, remember, redemption history is the way that God is working in saving ways from the creation of the world all the way until, he, uh, until Christ returns to call the church to himself and to judge the living and the dead. Everything that takes place in the middle is redemption history, how God is working his saving purposes in the lives uh, and through the history of human beings. And that redemption history takes place in four major epochs, epochs. I don't know how to say that word. Uh, I'm happy to take coaching later. Uh, Those four major epochs are creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. These are kind of the four major hills, if you will, on the landscape of redemption history. Uh, Second Thessalonians is focused uh, specifically on those last two epochs, 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 again, Help me say that word right. Redemption and consummation. So if you have something to write with or scribble little notes, you may want to circle those, those two words together, redemption and consummation. Because here in 2 Thessalonians, Paul is reminding the, 
the church at Thessalonica the, of the, the grace that they have received through faith in Christ. He's reminding them of their salvation, and he's pointing them forward to, he's assuring them of the things that will take place when Christ comes again to consummate his kingdom and to call and to gather his church to himself. So those, those two hills uh, on the landscape of redemption uh, history are certainly in view for us here. Now, as you read 2 Thessalonians on your own, as you take those four or five minutes, maybe uh, later tonight or tomorrow to read through it on your own too, uh, remember that 2 Thessalonians is an epistle. That's a fancy sort of uh, hermeneutical word for a letter. Epistles, these letters, of which Paul wrote some 13 or so, are often written to specific churches with a specific occasion or specific conflict that the writer is addressing. Paul's not the only one to write epistles. Peter does also. So do John and James and the unnamed author of Hebrews. Most New Testament epistles begin with a theological foundation and then move to a practical application. The best example of, of this is probably, in my view, Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. The first three chapters are all imperatives. This is what Christ, or not, excuse me, not imperatives, indicatives. These are things that Christ has done. These are things that, is, that, that are true. These are gospel realities that are at play in your life. And then the second three chapters, the second half of Ephesians is all imperative. Now do this. Now live this way. Walk according to the calling which you've been, uh, uh, walk according uh, to a manner of the calling which you've been called, so on and so forth. So when you go about reading 2 Thessalonians, remembering it's an epistle, it's a letter written by, uh, written by Paul and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to a church in a specific context, uh, I encourage you to use a few questions to help guide your reading and application of this letter. First of all, it's helpful to understand what is the problem at the church or to the believers or the Christians um, uh, that, that Paul is writing to here? What, what is the issue that he's writing to address? Second, what theological principle or theological principles are guiding the letter? What truths is Paul using to create a framework for thinking about how Christians ought to live who are facing the particular problem or particular issue that faces them? And then third, you may want to ask a question like, in what ways is the occasion of the letter, the occasion of the Thessalonians some uh, almost 2,000 years ago, in, in what way is their life circumstance similar to mine or similar to Christians in the present day? Because where there's similarity, um, the, the application uh, uh, of theology to the church in the letter will be the same for us today. There will be similarity there. But sometimes we need to understand their problem and maybe recognize that's not a problem for us, but there's still application. There's still things to be gained from the letter. Uh, you have an outline in your, um, in your note guide of Thessalonians and just kind of its major movements. There's about five or six of them there. And uh, we'll kind of work our way through the letter uh, sort of in order. So having said all that, let's turn our attention then to Second Thessalonians. And uh, uh, a letter that I have subtitled, Waiting Well. This is how we wait well for Christ's return. Now, perhaps you've heard of the sociological term or psychological term FOMO, F-O-M-O. And that's not, that's not short for a curse word. F-O-M-O stands for fear of missing out. It's a real emotional phenomenon that affects people of all ages and across all social media platforms. FOMO, fear of missing out, is properly designated, uh, as psychologists have, have designated it, as anxiety brought on by the prospect of missing out on opportunities. 
Mostly it has to do with anxiety over missing out on fun with other people or not being involved in some sort of momentous event. And FOMO, the fear of missing out, keeps people tied to social media, uh, watching their feed constantly to ensure that they're up to date on every option that they have to invest their free time. And it prevents people ultimately from making and even uh, keeping commitments to others. They're so afraid that they might commit to one thing Uh, they're afraid that by committing to one thing, they may miss out on a better opportunity that might come along later. So people who suffer from FOMO don't commit to anything and yet are totally anxious about the fact that they're not involved in anything. Strangely, fear of missing out leads only to heightened anxiety. And this is a real thing. I'm not making this up. FOMO leads to heightened anxiety. So it's a state of anxiousness that only makes somebody more anxious as it traps people in this weird cycle of worry and second guessing. Am I doing the right thing? Am I making the right decision? Should I commit to this? I don't know if I want to commit to that because if I commit to this and I can't do that and that might be better than the thing that I've committed to and ah! And all of that just to make sure that we get, inv- that, that we get invited to late night donuts with our friends, you know? I mean, now a different kind of FOMO, a different kind of fear of missing out gripped the Thessalonians. And that's the context uh, for this letter. That's the issue that Paul is addressing. Now, the fear of missing out that they had is far greater than the fear of missing out on an invitation to get late-night donuts with your friends. Theirs was a fear of missing out on the return of Christ. This was the fear that the Thessalonians faced in Paul's first letter. Specifically there, they were afraid that those among them who had died would miss the day of Christ's return. But here in Paul's second letter... It seems that they are now afraid that in their waiting for Christ's return that they have somehow managed to miss it altogether. They're just completely blind to Christ's return. What would a Christian elder or pastor or a mature saint then have to say to people suffering from this kind of fear of missing out? How might they address this issue? Well, Paul addresses that issue in 2 Thessalonians with this broad theme of waiting well. Christ has not returned yet. You'll know it when he does. In the meantime, wait well. Wait for him the right way. So as we open up this letter, we find, first of all, that waiting well for Christ's return means waiting through hardship. This is how Paul begins the body of his letter. As usual, Paul greets the Thessalonians with the way that he greets many of the churches. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a very customary greeting for Paul. He greets almost every church that he writes to this way. Grace to you and peace. And he thanks God for the faith and the love that the saints at Thessalonica have and that they have expressed throughout all of their persecution. Now, Paul doesn't talk about the persecution specifically that they're facing. He doesn't detail it. He doesn't explain what it was that we're going through, but, but he addresses it. And this was a persecution that had begun nearly from the inception of the church at Thessalonica, and it was continuing still. You'll remember, as we mentioned earlier in Acts chapter 17, when Paul and Silas and Timothy get to Thessalonica, they preach the gospel three Sabbaths in the synagogue, then they turn to the Gentiles, and then a mob forms and they have to leave. So that same mob, very likely, that forced Paul and his missionary partners out of the city probably was causing some other hardship and suffering for those that had become followers of Jesus under their ministry. I'm not totally sure what all this persecution entailed, and it may have been varied in kind and intensity throughout the time of the writing of these two letters, First and Second Thessalonians, but what is certain is that a good many of the believers were enduring this persecution with faith in Christ and with love for one another. They were enduring it very well. 
Now, their waiting polishers them won't be for nothing. He says in verses uh, 3 and 4, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. But Paul doesn't just say, good on you, keep it up. He assures them that their waiting through hardship, their enduring suffering will not be for nothing. There will be a a payoff for their faithful endurance. In fact, it is their waiting on Christ with faithfulness through persecution that will ultimately make them ready for his return. And when Christ does return, as Paul writes in verses 6 through 12 of uh, chapter 1, Christ will do three things for these believers who have waited well, or or through the believers and, and in the world, things for the believers to look forward to. First of all, Christ will comfort the faithful. When he returns, he will come to comfort the faithful, those who have endured with patience much persecution. Verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1 say, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Keep waiting well. Keep enduring suffering, Paul says, because when Christ comes, he will give you relief. He will comfort the faithful. But when Christ returns, he will also judge the wicked. Verses 8 through 10 go on. Uh, As Paul says, when Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. When Christ returns again, he will come to judge the wicked. He will come to give judgment to those who have rejected his lordship their whole life through. And, and, and the way that he judges them is by giving the, the punishment that really, or the result of their life that really they have been asking for all along. All along, unbelievers continually say, I want nothing to do with God. I want nothing to do with Christ. I, I would rather have nothing to do with them at all. And so when Christ returns in judgment, he gives them what they want. Eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Hell, in so many ways, is not, is not God's punishment of wicked people so much as it is giving people what they have always wanted for eternity, an existence without God. When Christ returns, third, Paul reminds the church that he will finish his will for the church, that Christ will complete what he wants to do in the church. Verses 11 and 12 of the same chapter, Paul says, To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. When Christ returns, he will bring the work that he has begun in the uh, people that are his church to completion. So certainly our case is just like that of the Thessalonians. Christ has not yet returned. Even some 2,000 years after the writing of this letter, the church is still waiting for Christ's return. But I wonder, do we wait as well as some of these Thessalonians did? Do we endure even light hardship with uh, such faith and love as these brothers and sisters did? 
Does our fear of missing out on the benefits of being, with, uh, uh, being friends with the world keep us from waiting well by looking to the comfort that Christ will bring? Have we grown lax in our resolve for good and working by faith as the Lord has tarried in His return? To be sure, the societal and cultural environment that we find ourselves in right now here in the, the American West in the 21st century, the environment that we find ourselves in is designed to distract us from hardship. Technology is always beckoning for our attention and promising to soothe the pain of life with just another little ding or buzz or whatever on these fancy little pain reduction devices we keep in our pockets. There's always an endless stream of entertainment and interaction promising to keep us from ever feeling the hardship of being alone. And it promises to give us something more tangible than faith to hold on to when life and relationships and occupations go askew and things go awry. The question for Christians today, as we still wait for Christ's return, is this. How will we wait through hardship, and certainly our hardship, that any hardship that we face here in the 21st century in America and in the West is, is far less than what the Thessalonians faced. Nevertheless, we do face hardship. We do face suffering. We still get sick. We still have to deal with family members and friends and maybe coworkers who ostracize us because of our faith in Christ. People still look at us weird because we follow Jesus. So how will we wait through hardship like these? Will we press into our hope of Christ's appearing as Paul encouraged the Thessalonians to do? Or will we seek to be distracted and soothed by the faithless comforts of a world determined to defy Christ's return by giving innumerable tempting substitutes to it? That's the question before us as Christians. How will we wait, and will we wait well through hardship? Well, Paul, in his letter, turns his attention in chapter 2 to the primary issue, or one of the primary issues that's facing the church in Thessalonica, and that is this misunderstanding about Christ's return. And in chapter 2 particularly, Paul teaches the church that waiting well for Christ's return means waiting well in truth. Waiting well in the light of of truth. Waiting well in light of what has been taught to them that is true. So as Paul continues in this short letter, he shifts his concentration now to some of the errors that had crept up in the church, specifically uh, in chapter 2, verse 1, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with Him. Now I want to read several verses, uh, verses 1 through 12, um, uh, just to kind of give us some context because it's kind of one long paragraph. You know how Paul likes his run-on sentences and he likes to tie things together. So I think it's helpful to read all 12 of these verses. So Paul writes this. He says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and this is how we know he's shifting thoughts, he's shifting um, um, his focus here. Now concerning this, that's that's a key to say, okay, new topic, here we go. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? 
And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, let's just be honest. There's a lot in this paragraph that is hard to understand. And uh, we don't have enough time tonight to unravel all of the things that Paul is saying here. There are lots of questions that come up after reading this paragraph. Who is this man of lawlessness? I am uh, confident to tell you that commentators on this text are not certain. Uh, even those that, that feel particularly certain still do so with some trepidation because the way that Paul talks about it is so just different. It's hard to know exactly who he is talking about. Is he talking about somebody who's alive in the day of the Thessalonians? Is he talking about somebody who's going to come later in Christian history? Who is this man of lawlessness, Paul? We don't know. Some have liked to equate him with the Antichrist, capital A, Antichrist. But that's a hard distinction to make because there's only one author in all of Scripture and all the New Testament that uses that word Antichrist. It's the Apostle John in his letters, First and Second John. And I told Pastor Danny I wasn't going to talk about this tonight, but hey, here I am. The Apostle John is the only person in, in the Bible to talk about Antichrist or Antichrists. And he always uses it in sort of a general term. He never uses it in a very specific uh, sense, like this individual person is the capital A proper noun Antichrist. John teaches us that, he, that an Antichrist is anyone who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh. And he says, and John says even in his letters, First uh, and Second John, there are many Antichrists even now. So is this man of lawlessness, the, the capital A proper pronoun, Antichrist? I don't think so, or proper noun, it's not a pronoun, but proper noun, Antichrist. I don't know, and it's hard to draw that direct link between them. So don't get all wrapped up around the axle about that. However, this man of lawlessness is probably among that group of people that John calls Antichrists, who denies that Christ has come in the flesh. And certainly this man of lawlessness is one who opposes God and even sets himself up as God to be worshipped by people. We know that he is influenced and empowered by the, the work of Satan himself. And that this man of lawlessness is not yet revealed. It's not yet certain. It's not yet clear to the Thessalonians or to Paul who this person is. But he will be revealed in time. And then as soon as he is revealed, he'll be summarily destroyed by Christ. I love the way that Paul talks, uh, describes what Jesus will do. The lawlessness, uh, verse 8, the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Boom, victory Jesus. And so this man is not yet revealed, but he will be revealed and summarily destroyed by Christ and believers won't be mistaken about that. And Paul says when he's revealed, you'll know it. And you'll know that he's been revealed because the, the Son of God, Jesus of Christ, will destroy him. But then there's also a rebellion that has to take place before Christ returns. Paul talks about what is this rebellion that he speaks of. It seems to be some kind of, of aligning with this man of lawlessness, a societal or cultural aligning with this individual. But again, that's about as clear as Paul gets about it. So what's the point of all of this? 
What's the point of, a, of Paul going into detail like this in this paragraph while speaking to the Thessalonians about Christ's return? I think the point is this. Believers, genuine followers of Jesus, will not be confused about Christ's return. That's the point. Genuine believers won't be confused about whether Christ has returned. If you are in Christ by faith, dear friend, you will not miss his coming. That's the the assurance that Paul gives to the Thessalonians and this is the assurance that God's word gives to us today. Either you will be raised from the dead and gathered to Christ as he comes, or if you are still living when he returns, you will see him coming on the clouds with glory to call the church to himself and to judge the living and the dead. So as they wait for Christ's return, Paul wants the Thessalonians not to be deceived about when and how Christ will return. They can be certain that he has not returned yet because they're still here and because certain things must first take place. Paul says the things that have to happen haven't happened yet. And these Christians can be confident that when Christ comes, they will not miss it. They won't be confused about it because Christ is coming for believers. That's why believers won't miss it because he's coming for them. The church must then, as Paul says in chapter 2, verse 15, in the meantime, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. So as we continue to wait for Christ's return, dear church, let us not be confused or deceived either. Let us not be swayed by spoken words or claims to some new spiritual revelation that, that people, individuals, know exactly when Christ will come. I remember... Uh, Several years ago when we were living and ministering in Hawaii, uh, it was 2011, I think it was uh, May 13th or 15th, something like that of 2011 was when a particular uh, uh, internet evangelist was certain Christ was coming back again. And even while we were in Hawaii, which is uh, obviously not just far away from the mainland, but, but, uh, but separated culturally in so many other ways, even in Hawaii, there were people standing with sandwich boards on street corners saying, you know, May 15th, 2011, Christ is coming again, speaking with confidence about this. Now, friends, that was 11, that was 10 years ago. I think if Christ had come back, we would have known it. I think we would have recognized it. If he's coming for us, we would have been caught up with him. And so even now, these delusions, these false sayings, these assertions of, of, of special revelation from God that only a particular individual is privy to about when Christ is returning, these things continue even today. It was a problem for the church 2,000 years ago, and it's a problem for the church 2,000 years later. We need not feed our imaginations with conspiracy theories that are propagated by morbidly obsessed eschatologians, many of whom ultimately get the gospel wrong, not just the date of Christ's return wrong, but the gospel altogether. Instead, as we wait for Christ to return and as we wait in truth, we focus on the gospel. We press into our sanctification We stay true, we hold fast to what Scripture has taught, and we fight, fight, fight against the allure of strange and conspiratorial theories and theologians. They're everywhere, and they're a dime a dozen. Folks, focus on the Word. Focus on the Gospel. Press into your sanctification as you wait well for Christ. And in so doing, you will find that Christ will comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word, as Paul says in chapter 2, verse 16. 
Waiting well means waiting through hardship. Waiting well for Christ's return means waiting in the truth, not being deceived about when he's coming. And finally, waiting well for Christ's return means working hard. And this is the final movement of Paul's letter here. In his first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul instructed the church to work with your hands so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And he writes to the church encouraging them to admonish the idle, chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. Admonish the the lazy, the busybodies. So here in chapter 3 of his letter, he doubles down on that same admonition. See what he says in verses uh, 6 through 12 of chapter 3. In verse 6, he says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Pick up in verse 10. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So not only had the Thessalonians fallen prey to the false thinking that Christ had returned and they had missed it, but some of them had also fallen into laziness, into slackness. It's not clear which came first, laziness or obsession with wrong theology, but the sternness, the, the, the pointed nature of Paul's writing here that, that w- with which he addresses their laziness makes me think that perhaps physical laziness sometimes encourages spiritual laziness as well. Busybodies who wrongly depend on others to provide for them, which seems to be part of the problem in Thessalonica, demonstrate a lack of discipline on at least one level. But perhaps they d- demonstrate a lack of discipline on many more. Idle hands are often the fruit of idle minds, and idle minds are often taken captive by strange theories and theologies. Working hard as believers wait for Christ to return is not just about maintaining some sort of Protestant work ethic and getting ahead in life. That's not the point of working hard until Christ returns. It's about emulating the life of Christ. It's about being conformed to the image of Christ. Christ did did not only work hard with his hands. He put his hands to work at the impulse of his heart to serve others. And so Paul did the same thing among the Thessalonians, giving them, as he says in his letter, uh, he says, giving you in ourselves an example to imitate. That example is not just one of physical work for the sake of an income, but it's physical work that facilitates the spread of the gospel. And it's the same thing that Paul is calling the Thessalonians to do as well. This is what Paul asked the church to pray for him, and it's what he expected of them. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Paul says, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. Right? He's saying, Pray for fruit of the gospel in our ministry and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Minds, brains that are focused on the gospel, ultimately direct hearts toward Christ-like affections. They, they teach us to love Christ rightly. And those affections of our hearts, driven by minds that are focused on the gospel and focused on Christ, drive our hands to work out the heart of Christ for others, meeting needs and proclaiming the word of the Lord, even as Paul did. 
Brothers and sisters, as we wait for Christ's return, my question to us, and I say us, including myself in that, is, are we working hard? And by that, I don't mean, are we workaholics? But I mean, are we working hard in the way that Paul encourages the church in Thessalonica to? This is where the sanctifying disinfectant of Scripture stings my heart most painfully. I am often tempted, friends, to be lazy, to let my idle mind be amused by thoughtless consumption of media. I like watching movies and funny TV shows and football. I am often tempted to be lazy. This, I must confess, often leads me to be even further self-centered in my thinking and even irritated when whatever movie I'm watching or whatever football game is interrupted by a child in need. It drives me nuts. Isn't that ridiculous? The child is in pain or wants to play or just needs some water to drink and I'm in the middle of a movie and the child says, Dad, can I? Can you help me? Can we? And my first instinct is, can't you just leave me alone and let me watch this movie? By that temptation to be lazy, to just be thoughtlessly entertained, to, to, to be carried, to, to even have the, my own thoughts thunk for me by whatever it is that I'm consuming, leads me to just be self-centered and selfish and just kind of a jerk sometimes. I wonder if the same thing was true among the Thessalonians if perhaps some of their laziness, their desire to not work and just live a free life off of whatever generosity other believers might give to them, if that led to to them also being selfish and self-centered and to have love grow cold toward other believers. As we wait for Christ's return, as Paul encourages the church in Thessalonica to work hard, will we also work hard? Now, working hard in and of itself is not a virtue, but working hard with a disciplined mind is meant to lead to virtuous things. Working hard with a disciplined mind, a mind that is focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ, is meant to lead us to see that our very occupations and our vocations are are, are a means to gospel work. We're to work hard in whatever it is that God has given us to do for the sake of the gospel. If you're a homemaker, the endless loads of laundry and vacuuming and tidying up which are done in the care and the cultivation of your family are meant also to lead to conversations with your family about how the love of Christ shapes the way that we give of ourselves for each other. If you're a physicist or a researcher, the way that you engage your mind in scientific work to advance national defense capabilities or avionics or whatever it is you brilliant people do at Sandia Labs, it is meant to give way to conversations about the God who not only sustains atomic fields and the laws of physics, but the God who also does so out of love and care for his creatures. We're to work hard with minds disciplined on the gospel as a means to getting the gospel in whatever situation we may be working. If you're an educator, the effort that you put into lesson plans and grading papers ought to display also the heart of Christ toward the poor in spirit who went to great, who himself went to great lengths to teach us, to teach those who are poor in spirit in ways that we could grasp the wonderful realities of the kingdom of God. If you're employed in public works, the little things you do that go unseen by so many, taking out the trash, collecting the the, the recycling, cleaning our city's drinking water, tidying landscapes uh, in medians throughout the city. These tiny little things that go unseen by so many to maintain quality of life for thousands in our city are meant to erupt in praise of the God who took on flesh in the form of a servant 
to seek and to save the lost. Even the academician, the professor, the public theologian, the pastor is meant to work hard with their minds, plumbing the depths of theory and theology so that we can all the better help others to love the Lord with their minds as well. While you wait for Christ's return, Paul says, work hard with gospel focus. Until Christ comes, and the point of 2 Thessalonians is that He most certainly will. Until Christ comes, Christians have gospel work to do. They must not fear that they have missed Christ's coming because they'll be certain about when He comes. They won't miss it. But neither must they obsess over His coming to the point that they neglect the work that there is to be done. Christians who wait for Christ's return must learn to wait well. We who are still waiting for Christ's return must learn to wait well. We wait through hardship, pressing into it with dependence upon God, be conformed to the image of Christ and leaning upon Him to provide all that we need in times of difficulty. We wait in truth, not being deceived about when Christ will return and what must first take place, understanding that since Christ is coming back for believers, that genuine believers will not miss it. And they wait, working hard in the meantime. And not just working hard for the sake of working hard, but working hard for the sake of getting the gospel into places it hasn't been yet. Getting the gospel to people who haven't heard it and responded in faith yet. We like to take time every, uh, whenever we have opportunity to, to look at a book of the Bible this way to see Christ specifically in that letter. Now, obviously, we've, we, we've seen Christ in several different ways already in 2 Thessalonians, but I just want to highlight two for us tonight. First of all, as we look at 2 Thessalonians, to find Jesus here, and not just what things we need to do in life, but to see Christ, who is, the, who is himself the sum and substance of all of the promises of God, we learn, first of all, and must not miss, that Jesus is the returning judge and king. Paul wants the Thessalonians to be certain about that. Church, we need to be certain about that, too. Jesus is the returning judge and king. Paul says in verses 7 through 10, we read them earlier, that he comes to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, And when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good work, every work of faith, Uh, by his power so the name of the lord jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our god and the lord jesus christ friends just as surely as jesus the son of god was born of a virgin just as surely as he lived a sinless life and died for sins on the cross and just as surely as he was raised from the dead and ascended in glory to the right hand of the father he is also coming back his coming the second time is not to bring hope to the hopeless and forgiveness of sins, but to reign in power and glory. Paul makes that clear in 2 Thessalonians 1. He is coming again to judge the living and the dead and to gather to himself those who are found in him by faith. His incarnation was as a servant to seek and to save the lost. His return will be as King of kings and Lord of lords. Do not miss this crucial point of what we believe about Christ. He is the returning judge and king. And we do well to wait well for his coming. But second, notice this in several places throughout Second Thessalonians, that Jesus is the hope of every believer. 
He's the hope of every believer. Now, we have talked about hope in the biblical sense several times before, but I'll just define it one more time. Hope in the biblical sense is not this kind of um, wishful desire for a future state or for something to take place. It, it, we don't talk about hope in the biblical sense like we, like we say, I hope I don't get in a car accident on the way home, right? That's a wishful desire for a future circumstance. When we talk about hope in the biblical sense, we are talking about confident expectation, Jesus is the confident expectation of every believer. He is the thing that we have to hold on to, that certain reality that is now and will be in the future as well. He's what we hold on to. He's the anchor of our soul. He's the hope of every believer. And this is a theme that shows up several times in 2 Thessalonians. In chapter 1, verses, verse 7 and 11 and 12. In chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. In chapter 3, verses 5 and in verse, and in verse 16. You can read those there. But the sure return of Jesus is a source of hope for everyone who calls on him as Lord. More times than there are chapters in this short letter, Paul refers to the comfort, to the hope, to the peace, to the confidence that Christians have, not just in the fact that Jesus is returning, but all of these things, comfort, hope, peace, and confidence that we have in the person of Jesus himself. He is all of these things to believers because we have trusted him as the one who gave his life to redeem us. And because his resurrection from the dead makes certain the trustworthiness of his promise to return. Christian, do you struggle from FOMO? From fear of missing out? Specifically, maybe fear of missing out on Christ's return? Let Second Thessalonians, this beautiful letter inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Thessalonica and to the saints throughout the ages, let it encourage you to know this. Christ is coming again. And when he comes, dear Christian, if your faith is found in him, you will not miss it. So work well and work hard in the meantime. Wait well in truth. Persevere in the midst of hardship, looking to Christ who is your hope. 